but everything they're learning in their lives through the traditional financial sources is, for the most part, one big lie. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me today, I'm excited to have Chris Noggle. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you joining me. And a little bit about Chris. He is a former uh, pro snowboarder, now a money mogul. He's dedicated his life to being America's number one money mentor with a core belief that success is built not by the resources you have, but how resourceful you can be. And I definitely uh, agree with that sentiment. So as an innovator and visionary in wealth building and real estate, empowers entrepreneurs, business owners, and real estate investors with the knowledge of how money works. Chris is also nationally recognized speaker, author, and podcast host. And he's spoken to and taught over 10,000 Americans. Uh, delivering financial knowledge that fuels lasting financial freedom. Um, lots more about Chris, but Chris, I think it's more exciting when you tell the story. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background um, and and kind of take us through what you're doing right now? Ah, you know, I think you did a pretty darn good job. I mean, I was born in a lower, lower middle-class family. My mom raised me. My dad was an alcoholic and, uh, we didn't have things, so to say, we you know, had a small little house that mom got in the divorce and she never really could give me monetary things because she just didn't have the money. So what she always taught me to do is dream. When I wanted things, I would first think about them. I would draw them and then I would uh, just you know, basically almost make them real in my mind to the point where literally vividly and whatever people believe, I would dream about these things, whether it's a skateboard or a dirt bike or surfing, you know, whatever it was that I wanted, I would dream about them. And the dream was so real that when I woke up, I didn't know whether or not I had or had not done that. You know, and I guess in life, you know, they, they say sometimes, you know, if you say you can and you say you can't, both are true. And, you know, my dreams were basically saying I could and all those things happened. But as time went on, you know, I, 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 worked on farms and that's how I afforded gas and dirt bikes. And then at 16, I got a big boy job, like many of you working at a restaurant. Cause that's just, I guess what you do when you're 16, yep. but I was so badly treated at this restaurant that I came in one day and he started in on me and I just, just said, I quit. And that was the first time I, I, I had a real job outside of the farm. And it was also the first time I'd ever quit any kind of a job or pretty much anything in my life. So when I did that, I came home thinking mom was going to be bad my God, you quit your job. And, I, and so I had a backup plan. I'm like, all right, mom, I quit my job thinking she's going to freak out. And then I said, but I want to start a clothing line in the basement called fat clothing company, P H A T. And I'd been thinking about this for a while and she was thrilled. She said, absolutely. You know, so she supported my goals. Well, that little clothing line on my journey to becoming a pro snowboarder, that's the only thing I cared about. So that's the only thing I needed money for. That clothing line ended up in a bunch of stores across the Eastern seaboard because I would take it and just stop at all the shops along the way. And when I was 17, I had three seamstresses working for me. I was, I guess you'd call me an entrepreneur. I was just a kid. I mean, I was just a kid just living the dream and just making a couple of bucks here and there. And then I got this big idea that I wanted my own shop. See, I was selling my clothes at this flea market with this guy named Steve and me and Steve at the flea market had got talking about 
let's open it a store. Let I'll get out of this flea market with my stuff. You can get out of this flea market. And we can just do a store called fat man. I had fat clothing and I was the man. So bingo. So that was the next big idea. And that idea would take 70 grand. Now I'm 17 years old. I've got a KX 125 uh, at that time, a 1986 Buick Skyhawk. That was two, two colors, not because of that's how it came, but because it's been wrecked. And I think I had a baseball card collection. So when I went around trying to raise money, I heard lots of no's. Everybody said I was crazy. My dad said, come get a job at uh, the factory with me and all this crap. Everybody was trying to talk me off of my dream and get me into the reality of what I call failed dreams. And I didn't go that route because of one person who I call the unconditional one. And that one person was my mother, the one person that had no money, but did have the house that she got in the divorce and it had 75,000 in equity. So my mom did what I think was a stupid thing. Back then I thought it was awesome, you know, but it, now I look back, I'm like, this is so dumb. My mom put her house on the line. So her punk 17 year old could chase his dream. Fat Man Board Shops opened November of 1994. Fat Man Board Shops is still open today. I sold it in 2010, but the legacy leaves on, or lives on. And that was my first monumental accomplishment. My first big thing where I borrowed a lot of money and I had to learn how to be a business owner, not just this kid that ran a clothing line in mom's basement. Now, now there was some consequences. If I didn't perform, if I didn't sell, mom's house left. And I knew that. And I went to bed every night thinking about that for five years until the day we paid that, that loan off through a raging party at my mom's house, almost went to jail for serving underage. I well, call them kids. They were my friends in my age, but serving underage people, <laughs> alcohol, but Hey, that's for another story. So that store went on and everything was like a dream, man. I, I was a pro snowboarder. I kept expanding my retail stores. I had, I think three stores at the time. And then the dot-com crash hit. Many people listening to this are probably too young to remember the early 2000s and what was the tech crash. Some people remember the planes hitting the tower, but that was my first recession. I didn't even know what recession meant, hmm. but I very quickly learned that the recession meant that my business dropped 30%. That recession meant that I couldn't pay my car payment. That recession meant that I had a lot of things that were going to fall apart if I didn't get my, my boots on and go out there and make things happen. So what I did is what everybody else would do is I decided, all right, I'm going to go get a job. My friend worked at Little Caesars and I said, all right, they hire delivery drivers. I said, I don't know, come on in. So I got in there and they said, no, we're not hiring delivery drivers. I'm like, oh, plan failed, you know? And I, I call things in my life transitions, you know, that was transition. So I put my resume out and the only companies that called me back, this is kind of funny and I still think about this a lot, were Wall Street firms. Like what the hell does Wall Street want with a punk snowboard kid that wears a hoodie and a beanie to work or to, yeah, to work and to life every single day. But what I found is they look for self-starters, they look for entrepreneur spirits and they look for people that can go out there and be a good student and sell. And I guess I checked all those boxes. So there I was, I don't know how old I was, 20, early 20s, broke as a joke, living at my friend's house, eating mulberries from the tree because I couldn't afford lunch. And I'm now working in Wall Street. And I saw dollar signs and I sat in the bullpen, watched all the big guys on the outside skirts of the goal, the glass cubicle or the glass offices that I wanted to be in. And I, I was just a, I don't know, just a hustling kind of kid. And I said, you know what, if I want one of those offices, I just got to do what everybody else is unwilling to do. They got in at nine. I came in at seven. They left for lunch. I dialed through lunch. They left at 4.30 when the market closed. I stayed till eight and made phone calls or went and seen people at their kitchen tables. 
In doing that from the early years, 2003, straight through to 2008, I became one of the top financial advisors in that firm. I was making crazy amount of money in my realm, uh, a couple hundred thousand bucks more than I'd ever made. I had a bit of an ego. I had nice cars now. I'd even uh, accomplished myself and bought myself a nice house. And uh, 2006 and seven, I flipped my first homes. They were a tragic mess, uh, but I did it and I made a couple grand. So I knew I could. And then in 08, I decided to dive in and I bought a dilapidated paint store, two buildings down from my main fat man shop. And it was going to be the new home, the headquarters. It was going to be a strip mall that rented two other places out. Now, as I just unpacked all that, did you hear when I said I was doing that? Yeah. yeah. 2008. We talked about this when you were on my podcast. So I bought this building. I borrowed money from a hard money lender, not a nice guy at a very high interest rate in 2008 before the Great Recession hit. So when the Great Recession hit, it was the equivalent of me getting hit by a Mack truck at full steam ahead. And I was literally one payment from being broke, not just broke, but completely bankrupt. Game over. That's it. You can't pass go. So I came home one night to my new girlfriend, who I, I called my token girlfriend. She just moved into my house. She's super hot and everything I, you know, was bragging about to my friends. And I said to her, I said, sweetie, I need your help. Need your help paying the mortgage. Need your help paying the utilities. And my friend Pete's going to move into that bedroom down there. And I think Jessica's going to move in upstairs. Any questions? Thinking, uh, this is where ego comes in, thinking, hey, I got a 50-50 shot of this girl walking out the door. My friends later told me I had less than a 10% shot. But I think <laughs> she kind of liked me because she stuck around and she's wow. still, we're still together. And we just had a, a daughter together and you know, little baby's 18 months old. So, you know, the rest of that story, but that was the first, I would say failure, big failure. I failed a couple of times, but that was the first big failure. Cause literally like I stared bankruptcy in the yeah. eyes. Thankfully I didn't go bankrupt, but just like you, you know, Todd, I started buying real estate. I started diving in and buying apartment buildings because I knew what Warren Buffett said. He said, buy low, sell high and don't lose money. So I did that. I just copied what he said. And I read some books, much like you, but one was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I, I bought apartment buildings in my personal name using personal mortgages because I remember they, they told me about commercial mortgages, but I'm like, yeah, but they're more expensive. You remember I was talking to right offline when we came on, you know, cost. We always wrap our heads around cost. And I was so caught up that the commercial loan was six or something like that, maybe mm -hmm. seven back then. Oh, and yeah, the personal seven. loan, yeah, personal loan might've been five and a half. So I'm like, well, give me the low one. Didn't know the consequences, didn't know what that meant, didn't know the trap I was walking myself in. So over the next couple of years, I was an advisor. I was a pro snowboarder. I had sold my shops in 2010. I later sold that strip mall in 2014, but now I had 36 units. I had built a rental portfolio up to 36 units, all financed with the same bank in my personal name. And then came the 37th door brought to the bank. No big deal. I'm the big guy. Now I got 36 units, you know, Hey, I'm back on my feet a little bit in the advisory world. I had a little money from the sale to Plaza. Like, Hey, I'm getting there. I'm climbing the ladder and I'm doing everything they taught me to do. And the bank comes back and says, we can't approve this mortgage. Hmm. I said, Greg, Greg was the bank broker. Greg, what do you mean, man? Like you can find this, all the other ones. Look at my, look at, I got income. I got this, right? Chris, you don't fit the income, the debt to income ratio that this bank has. So we can't issue the mortgage. And by the way, we're going to have to freeze your line of credit. 
Now, if any of you know anything about leverage, when you're scaling a real estate business, you heavily use other people's money. I was heavily using this line of credit to do what I did. They froze that line, which means now I can't finish these units, which means very quickly things start to come undone and unwind. Mm -hmm. So 2014 began one of the worst tragic messes of my life where I had to sell all those units. Every one of those properties had to be sold. Me and my, my well, it was Larissa, she was my fiance, had to sell our dream house. Uh, and now all of a sudden I had to kind of rebuild and figure out what I was going to be when I grow up. Because I was kind of approaching not the tail end of my snowboard career, but I was maybe in the pinnacle and, and there's so much things were just unwinding that I went to Thailand for a, almost a month with a backpack just to find who I was. And, you know, looking back, this period of time was probably one of the hardest. There were times when I was at the very lowest points of my life thinking, hey, should I even be here? We've all sometimes had that self-talk. It's not a good one. And it was also one of the times that I look back and I say, you know, if this time didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I'm at because it was the time where I was willing to accept and I was willing to learn. And how that learning began was a postcard that came in the mail to come to a three-day seminar to none other than learn how to flip houses. Now, I did not want to learn how to flip houses at this point. I just wanted the secrets of life or something. But I went because they gave a free iPod shuffle away. And at that three-day event, I met two guys, Mike and Greg. And they sat up at the front of the room talking about money and real estate. Greg was the bank and Mike was a TV show star from A&E show. And I remember thinking, these guys are superstars. That guy's got a plane. He's got money. I said, what are they doing? And I started listening to them and the way they talked about money. Now, remember, I'm a pretty high level advisor at right. this point. And they're talking about money. And what they talked about was the complete opposite opposite of every single thing I'd ever learned as a financial advisor. And up to that point, I was an advisor for almost 14, maybe even 15 years. And they're saying that they're doing the opposite. So I had a decision and I had a kind of, I was at a crossroads. Do I travel the road, path, you know, the path that's all worn down that everybody goes on, which is traditional financial knowledge? Or do I go down this path, which is all weeded and that doesn't look like anything's been down there. And that's the path that these wealthy individuals were on. And that began my journey to where I'm at today of learning the truth about money, learning how money really works, teaching thousands, tens of thousands for that matter of people and, and teaching them how money really works and that everything they're learning in their lives through the traditional financial sources is for the most part, one big lie that is there to self-serve others and not take care of you. Wow, man. What a story. Um, what a journey that you've been, you've been on. And I'm oh, sure a lot of the lessons. Yeah. Well, it, but you've learned so many valuable lessons, right? Without, without the journey that you've been on, you, you wouldn't be where you're at today. Certainly. hundred percent. So, um, and, and kudos to you, by the way, for, for dusting yourself off every time something went wrong, because so many other people would just let that, let that ruin them. Right. Let that just, well, I guess I'm destined for something different. Right. What's so what's, what's the opposite? What do you mean by the opposite? Explain that a little bit to our listeners. Sure. Well, as an advisor, you know, what we are taught is to sell products, mutual funds. We sold annuities. We sold wrap accounts. You know, we were selling traditional financial products and charging fees for that. And these wealthy individuals, they were literally participating in the wealth journey as, as I've learned today. And the one thing that they did different 
And this is the thing I didn't understand is they did not give up control of their money. Yes, maybe they had money in stocks, but they didn't give up control to brokers. I, I, as, as later, you know, Greg would have told me, he says, brokers will make you broker. And as an advisor, I took that as a kick between the legs. But, you know, later I was like, well, that's actually not too far from the truth. And uh, they weren't they were in control of their money. But what they did and what they learned is they they understood banking. Now, I know this is a boring topic, but they understood how banks operate. They understand how banks work and how banks make money and how they take very little risk to make money and how they continuously and always move money. And this is not what I did. What I was taught to do is when I made money, I put it into somebody else's bank, just like all of you do. You make money and you put it in the traditional bank. And then I started realizing that when I put money in the bank, I got joy out of having more and more money sitting in the bank. If I, if I had 10 grand in there, I felt good. If I had 50 grand, I felt really good. If I had 100 grand, man, I was winning. But what I didn't realize is the only one that was winning in that equation was the bank because I would work for that money and then I would gladly, because this is what we are all taught to do, myself included, I would give that money to the bank in the form of a deposit. And I'd grab one of those suckers on the way that says dum-dums, you know, and I wouldn't even think about it. Just what flavor do I want? Grape, lemon, you know, they had all the flavors. Dum-dum suckers. Not a bank in this country that does not serve you dum-dum suckers. Check it out. But, you know, you, you give oh, up I control love, of your- I love that. I never even thought about that. Wow. I know. I know. Well, geez, man, let me peel the onion a couple more times <laughs> to tell you what's going on. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I started to realize that, you know, in doing this, I was a sense, false sense of reality because I wasn't making any more money. My money was sitting stagnant like it was sitting in a, in a old stagnant pond that smells. When the bank took my money and immediately moved my money, because my bank certainly was not taking my deposits and putting them in that thing they call a vault with, you know, with my name on it. Hey, on that shelf number two, see that little box right there? Yeah, that's mine. That's my money. No, the bank moved my money. And in the process of moving my money, I found out from a website called BauerFinancial.com that banks make 400 to 1300% more than we make on the money that we leave there. Wow. That hit me hard, but then I, I unwound a little bit more. And in my journey and in my life as an advisor or just as an employee, I also always put value on my hours. I always was striving to make X amount per hour. If I work an hour, it's worth this. You know, we've all gone through this. Wow, I wish I could make 50 bucks an hour. Oh my God, when I can make a hundred bucks an hour. Oh my God, when I can make a thousand dollars an hour, I'm at the top of the world. These wealthy individuals never put a monetary value on their time because they understood their time was priceless. You could never put a price tag on the time that they had because their time was priceless. So I'm not saying that they didn't trade hours to make money, but they did it in a different way because they understood that their money would work for them as hard as they wanted their money to work for them. So what they did is they found ways to move their money, similar to how the bank moves your money. And they found ways to move money in ways that were very low risk, because everything they did had a security behind it, had some tangible asset that was securitizing what they were doing. So in other words, they were practicing protecting their wealth and they were doing it in a similar fashion in the real estate world of what I like to call Talladega Nights. You've seen the movie with Talladega Nights, the race cars. And in that movie, Ricky Bobby's dad says, son, if you're not first, you're last. Well, that rang with me and I never forgot that because if you're not first, you're last in the world of protecting your wealth. So they understood that and that's all they did. They didn't trade hours for dollars. They understood that their money in order to grow had to work. 
So they had to find ways to make their money go to work. They had to protect their wealth when they did that. And in doing all of this, they had to find a way to be in full control of every single dollar of that money. And then they found a way, and this isn't these two individuals. Actually, it was I was tipped off by Mike on what this was, but I later found that this is something that came from the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the JPs, the Morgans, Ray Kroc, Walt Disney, and all the all the big names I could name to the sitting president today, they all used a system that allowed them to tap into one of the most powerful things in the financial universe that all of us think we know, but very few of us really understand, and that is compound interest. We think we understand it. If I put a dollar in and I leave it sit, that dollar grows, and the next year it compounds on that new dollars because it, it grew a little bit. And then the next year it grows on a higher amount and grows on a higher amount. But there's a big fault with compound interest that Albert Einstein never talked about in his theory saying, those that understand compound interest earn it, those that don't pay it, which is absolutely true. But one thing he missed and did not explain is that compound interest to earn it involves you parking your money somewhere and leaving it sit. Because how can your money compound if it's in motion? How can your money compound if it's not sitting still? Well, ask the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the banks of today, because banks are the number one users of what I do today. And they found a way to earn uninterrupted compound interest on every single dollar that they saved. Because the number one thing, like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to build wealth. The first question I ask is, are you applying law number one of wealth? Oh, what is that? How do you do that? Are you keeping one-tenth of the money that you earn, your gross? And they say, all right, well, I'm making 100 grand. Are you keeping 10% of that? Well, no, I'm probably not keeping that much. Well, then you are not where you need to be, so you got to focus on that. Too many people want to go all the way down to the end and start at the fun stuff before applying the most important things, which how can you build wealth if you haven't learned how to keep your money? Everybody today is so good at making money. I mean, how many gurus do you see out there, Todd? I mean, there's gurus in your, your space there. Everybody seems to be yep. a guru in the real estate space today. And how many of them are? Not many, Not but many. they all think they are. I know, trust me. They all think they are because they think they know something that they don't know because they found wealth. They found money. They didn't find wealth. They found riches. They found ways to make money. Maybe on paper, they've gotten rich through crypto, through real estate. But the thing that they don't understand yet, it's coming, but they don't know this yet is they don't know how to keep their money. It's great to make money. And I'm happy for everybody that does. And the one thing I've learned is it's not making money that's hard, it's keeping the money. And in order to keep it, you better understand a lot more than just simply going out there and hustling and trading hours for dollars because that only gets you so far until the next crash or the next event or the next downfall or the next medical emergency or go on for days. One, you're one step away from being broke. And so I, that was long, but the most important lessons that I learned from the wealthy is that they literally do the opposite of everything we're told to do. They don't put money in 401ks, okay? They find other ways to invest. If they need deductions, they don't say, oh, Mr. Uh, financial Advisor, can you set up a 401k so I can put that, you know, whatever, almost 20 grand in, you know, and then I got a match, you know, for my employees to Safe Harbor to get it in there. Can you set me up one of those? No. They find things like what you do, Todd. They find ways to get deductions through real estate. And sometimes they don't even own the real estate because they've learned from the Rockefeller way that own nothing but control everything. I mean, you do syndications. Like, think about that. There's limited partners that come in and they get to share in that, deduct that deduction, that, that depreciation. They don't have to own that property. They never have to get a call from a tenant. They never have to get a call from you know somebody saying, hey, the, the shitter's uh, overflowing. Can you get down here and fix this? Nope. They just get a check every single month. And at the end of the year, they get to write off whatever the losses are or whatever the depreciation is. Man, that sounds like a good 
program to me. And it's a good program for the wealthy because that's what they do. And the wealthy also really, really participating in lending. Now, you don't usually know this because it's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's not something they brag about. But I bet you, if you go around, you pull a whole bunch of extremely wealthy individuals, 10 million or over, okay, you will find that all of them are in some form of banking. I don't mean they own a bank. I don't mean they work at a bank. I mean, they are participating in banking in one way or the other because right. that is the ultimate way to build wealth. There yeah. you have it. I love it, man. Lots of stuff uh, in there and, and probably could go into like six more episodes with all the stuff you said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about knowing how to keep your money. Okay. So we all, you know, I, I know a lot of people that, that make a lot of money, but they spend it all. They spend every last penny of it or they just, they're just not very good at it. Uh, they go bankrupt a lot. They maybe not even go bankrupt, they, but they just get into bad positions. Um, and I think that's the majority of people, quite frankly. So what are, what are some of the things that you tell, talk to people about on how can they keep their money? How can you actually keep it what you make? And how can you keep the interest that you're making to continue to grow it? Well, I think it's, it's a lot simpler than people want to make it out to be. I think first off, we need to understand that today's gratifications mean that tomorrow we're going to pay for it. We're going to suffer. The journey is going to someday catch up with us. And if we spend it all today, later, we're going to have to pay for it. And I don't mean literally, I mean, you're going to have to fight a hard fight and suffer. And that's all you can call it. Like I've read a lot of books and that's, they all call it suffering. So you can either suffer today and give up today, the gratifications that you might want so that later you can live your perfect day every day. So I think that's the first thing people need to understand, which goes to law number one of wealth is you have to be keeping no less than one-tenth of your gross income. Don't cheat yourself. You're not, nobody's going to sit there and say, hey, did you, let me see it. Did you save one-tenth? Nobody cares because nobody should care more about your money than you care about your own damn money. Nobody right. will, unless they're trying to sell you something. And then it's just a lie anyway. Trust me, I know all about that. So the thing is, is you got to give up today so you can have tomorrow. First step. Second step to keeping money is you, you have to continue down the path of the wealth journey of the laws of wealth, really. And the laws of wealth, number two, is you have to learn how to make your money work for you. So if you want to keep your money, well, your money has to go out and work for you because you can only work so hard. You only have enough energy to work X amount of hours a day for X amount of days a week for X amount of months a year, you get the drift. Eventually you shut down mentally, physically, and however you want to do it. So if that's the case, then we have restrictions on how much money we can make and how much money we can keep and how much wealth we can have if we're always hustling and trading hours for dollars. So the answer to that and keeping wealth is your money needs to go out there and work for you. And there's lots of ways to do that. The first place I tell people to start with wealth is right back to the first thing is when we look at where our money goes, we make money and our money goes out the door. Okay. That's not money you keep. That's money that you spend. So a lot of people, when I say, how much money do you get to keep? They say, well, I keep it all. I, I, I work for it. I make a hundred grand. I keep a hundred grand. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. How much do you get to keep? I, I don't get the question. How much money goes out the door every single month? What's left at the end of all the spending that you do for those cars, that house, that fancy Gucci thing that you have and all that stuff? How much is left? Well, not nothing really. Every month, let's start over. That's most people in America. Or most people won't admit it because now you got credit cards. So now they're just using other people's money, digging a deeper hole. So the fastest way to wealth is not going out and doing the things that we do, but it is actually looking at where all your money goes, finding a way to take back the money you give away. How much money are you giving the credit cards? How much money are you giving lines of credit? How much money are you paying out on your car payments or leases? Start there. 
create a system, change one thing and change where your money goes first so you can tap into uninterrupted compound interest. Then from that one place that changed, which is where your money sits, which is not a traditional bank, it's actually a giant mutually owned insurance company. Then we take that money and we deploy that money out there to go to work for you. And the best way to make it go to work is start paying off the places and the debts that you have where your money leaks every month. But when do you pay off your credit card? We'll just start with credit cards. If I take money from this source, this giant mutually owned insurance company that's holding my money, and I'm probably going to have time to get into that, but we take the money and we pay off Visa. And that's one of the debtors that's charging us 20%. And let's just say your payment to Visa is 200 bucks a month. Most people, when they pay a credit card off, they're like, all right, they, they think the equation's over. It's not. You're not, you're lying to yourself. You're not treating your money the same way you treated Visa's money. You're not treating your money the same way you treat the bank's money. What I do and what the wealthy do is they pay Visa off and they take the $200 they used to give the Visa. And what they do is they recapture that money. They write a check or set up a bill pay. So that $200 comes back over into their bank. Now, again, their bank is not a traditional bank. It could be, but it's not. Okay. So now all of a sudden they've just recaptured $200 that left their family every month, which is the equivalent of 20% return or whatever your debts charge you. Then you just keep going down the line, but you don't spend that $200. A lot of people love to get that money and spend it. No, you redeploy that money to go work for you again. And you go to the next debt and the next debt, and then you pay off the car. Then you pay off the lines of credit. Then once all the debts are gone, now all of a sudden you've got a bunch of extra money coming in and you didn't have to work any harder for it, any longer for it. And you didn't have to take on any risk. All the risk was simply in your faults because you decided that you needed all this stuff that you didn't need. Now, once you're at that point, now fun starts. So then you go to law number three and law number three is protect your wealth. So now we got all this extra money. So now we got to decide how are we going to move it and how are we going to protect it? Well, I love real estate and I don't like owning real estate anymore. I've had lots of rentals. I hated it. I hated tenants. I couldn't stand them. So now what I do is I just love to be the lender. I like to control the deal, but never have ownership of it. I lend in a first secured position. I also buy real estate in an indirect partnership, okay? Or I do fund other things like invest in private funds, or I haven't done syndications, but private funds, all in which are in a protected state because there's a piece of real estate or some asset behind it protecting it. And here's the thing. This is where people unwind and go wrong. Once you get to that point, once you're at law number three of wealth, now you are keeping money. Okay. But the biggest problem now is your own self. Because the law number four states if you seek unrealistic returns, your money will flee you. I know people right now that are chasing, you, you look at, you're laughing, like, because we all know these people. They are chasing unrealistic returns that are not sustainable, scalable, or you can't keep it. Because once you get to a certain level where you've got money and you've learned how to keep it and make it, now all of a sudden you want more because it's called greed or there's FOMO, fear of missing out. So what people do is they go out and take unnecessary risk. They invest in things that they don't know, they don't understand, and they don't have knowledge in because somebody else came in and told them this is what they should do. And then they don't, they don't do their due diligence, look at that somebody else. Like my number one superpower is I'm very good at looking at people. I, on our podcast, Todd, like you are somebody that I would invest with because of your core values, your low risk. And also, I know you're an expert in your field. So when I give money to somebody else to invest with them, if I'm not the person doing it, what I look for is I look for somebody that has wisdom. I look for somebody that has knowledge. And I look to make sure that that wisdom and knowledge was based on time put in, failures that they've done, things they've learned, and track histories that they can prove. How many people go out and seek returns from people that they've done due diligence on? Very few. 
which is why so many people are investing in these shit coins and like all these cryptos that they don't even understand. They put money in NFTs when they don't even know what NFT is. They don't even know what it stands for because they have no knowledge in it, but they've been lured in by scammers, fraudsters, or unrealistic returns. And if you do that, your money will flee you. Well, here, I, mean, I got one more thing, Todd, and this is this, and there's six laws. I'm only going to give you the fifth one. Single most important thing, Todd, you understand this very well. And I did not, but now I do. And this is the sole thing I focus 100% of my time every single day. My days from sunup to sundown are spent solving somebody else's problem. I go out there and I find other problems to solve every day. Not mine. I have problems just like everybody else. Just like you, Todd, you have problems. But we don't solve our problems. We solve somebody else's problem. You solve problems for your investors. You solve problems for other people. And because you focus your time solving a problem for somebody else, your problems all get solved in time. That is the fifth law of wealth and single-handedly the most important one that everybody puts last when it should be first. So how do we get to know the sixth law? Sixth law is simple. Six. No, God, it's simple, man. It's legacy. Live your life to create a legacy that means, and when I say a legacy, some people are like, oh, put your money in, buy a term policy, buy, you know, one of those specially designed whole lives you always talk about. And, and then that provides a legacy and a death benefit. No, no, no. I mean, the legacy that when you graduate and go on to a higher place, people remember you because of what you did with law number five, because of the amount of people's mm -hmm. problems you saw, because of the amount of lives you touched, because of the amount of lives you were able to improve. That's the legacy that matters. Legacy. Not how much money you leave, not the cars you leave in the garage. Nobody at your funeral gives a shit about the Ferrari in the garage. Well, maybe somebody does, but not many people do. They remember the things you did to change other people's lives. That's it. That's your legacy. Do something in this life that is remembered on and on for generations so that someday somebody gets a check and that check was derived from efforts you put in or for something you did to solve their problem. Yep. No, I love that. Yeah, the the cool Ferraris. One person's gonna get to enjoy it. Maybe a couple people, you know, for one generation, maybe two, but that's it. But if you mm -hmm. leave a lasting legacy and you're truly making a difference, that's when generations are gonna remember you. That's when grandkids, great grandkids, and beyond are gonna know exactly who you were, the type of person, and and hopefully try to live up to that expectation as yeah. well. This is what, who our family is. It's funny you mention that because, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, at this stage in my life thinking, you know, I'm 44 and I spend a lot of time thinking about legacy. Now I'm not thinking that I'm going anywhere anytime soon could happen, but what I'm trying to do is I think a lot about, you know, when I'm gone, what if I could set it up so that certain charities or my family, they get a check every single month and every single month that check comes and it says from dad, from grandpa, from great grandpa. Can you imagine Every single month, if your great, great, great grandchildren got a check, I don't care how much it is, but got a check and underneath it on the memo, it said from your great, great, great grandpa. They never knew you. They didn't even know you. They've only heard stories of you. And, but what they do remember is that that check was derived from the legacy that you created. Man, I spend too much time thinking about that. And how many of those checks can I make sure continue on because of the legacy I created when I was here? And that legacy was solely created because I was really focused on solving other people's problems. And because of that, my problems yeah. were always solved. Yeah, love it, man. Love it. One thing you said there, and you kind of hit on it. I was going to ask you that. Uh, uh, 
these unrealistic returns. I mean, we all got these like phones, right? And, and you got, I don't know, whatever social media you're connected to, but I'm sure most people are. You see these people that are making these crazy returns in Bitcoin and, and all these cryptos and, and whatever. And I've, I see these charts that are comparing crypto to real estate. And oh, what if you would have invested this money into crypto? Here's where you'd be at versus stocks or versus real estate or whatever. And it's exactly what you said. Don't seek unrealistic returns. Yes. Did somebody make those returns? Absolutely. Is somebody going to make great returns again? Probably. But do you even know what you're doing? Like you, you're putting this money in there. You, you might lose it all. Like you're just betting. You're betting. You're gambling. That's all you are. And it, it's seeking these unrealistic returns. And that's exactly how you lose your money not keep it is seeking out realistic returns. You and I were investing in things that are proven. We're investing in things. That and for the most part, boring, which is the best boring. part about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not exciting. It's not exciting to tell people what we're doing, but if, if it's exciting to tell people you're investing in these cryptocurrencies and you made all this money because people, Oh, wow. Tell me, tell me how you did it. Now they want to be just like you. Um, but that's how I you visit your money. Yeah. I visit a lot of masterminds and there's always young, you know, in masterminds today, you know, it used to kind of be the people that you knew. Now there's a whole new wave of, you know, these, I'll call them youngins. I'm 44. I can do that. They come in and you're like, Oh, what, what's that guy do? He looks like he's 21. Oh, he made all of his money in, in crypto. Oh, mm. it's great that they're making all this money, but so much of that money isn't even real because it's built on a return that isn't even, um, the return isn't even real because it's based on coins that have really no fundamentals, no tech, no tangible backing. A coin that somebody says is worth this because of investor confidence. And that coin is traded into another coin, into another coin, into another coin, into this NFT. And that drives the value based on a coin that really had no value in the first place. But all of that will continue just like it did back in 1929, before it all let loose in the Great Depression. This will all continue just like it did before the dot-com crash and just like it did before 2008. But when it all unravels, which it will, and it will happen very quickly, all of those unrealistic returns that everybody's super excited about that everybody brags about and everybody's, you know, maybe, or maybe not buying, or maybe just a renting a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. God, how many Lamborghinis I see on TikTok is insane. And, and I'm just thinking, you don't even understand what this is because pretty soon, just like it happened to me, that they're going to be taking that back and your fake paper money that you've made is not going to be there anymore. And you're going to be wondering what went wrong and nothing went wrong. You just didn't understand the laws of wealth. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be a sad state of affairs right now. Everybody, you know, I do a show every, I do a bunch of shows, but I do a show every Wednesday morning, very popular at 9 30 AM. It's called what the F happened. And it's soon to be a syndicated show, but we literally get in full blown arguments with people on TikTok and Instagram about this because they are so convinced that they know everything. And, you know, Will Rogers says it best. He said, the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. The biggest problem in America is what people think they know think that they just know. ain't so. That's the biggest problem. Mm. I love that quote. That's great. Oh man, lots of, lots of good stuff here. I, I got a couple of questions. We got to wrap up here, but I got a couple of last questions before we do, and I can keep going. This is a fascinating topic. Maybe boring for some people, but I, I love the, I love the topic. So, um, all right. So, what's a what's a book you want to recommend to our listeners? A favorite book that you could recommend? 
Well, I read lots of books and I have lots of favorite ones, but to keep it really simple, everybody should start with the richest man in Babylon. Mm. If you have not read the richest man in Babylon, then you need to. A lot of what you heard me talking about is things that have been around since before Christ, you know, that are talked about in this book, you know, in a different realm, because it was a different time, but that would be the biggest recommendation I'd make is the richest man in Babylon. Love it. Good, good book. Super easy to read too. Very just, easy. just a story. Uh, so it's super easy to read. Love it. Uh, how do you like to give back? A lot of different ways, but my favorite way is, you know, we all get envelopes in the mail, sometimes more like around the Christmas time. And those envelopes always come and they're asking for money, give to this charity, give to this foundation. And what I do and what I've made a habit of doing is every single one of them, I get, I take them to work. I unwrap them. I pull it out. And from my heart, not from my pen, from my heart, I just write a number down. And then I physically, I'm still a check writer. I pull out a check and I write that check out because I want to, in my mind, witness this happening. And I write the check, I put it in and I mail it. And then what do they do? They mail you another one. Nope, I do it again. Sometimes it's five bucks. Sometimes it's 50 bucks. Sometimes it's a thousand bucks. doesn't matter. And that is the way that I constantly keep myself grounded to give. And I give a lot of other ways, you know, whether it's family or charities or, you know, cancer is a huge thing I'm a proponent of. So any way I can help, you know, for cancer or for kids or, you know, definitely for animals. A lot of people like want to, you know, jump on things for people, but animals can't help themselves. People can. So I give a lot. I'm a cat guy. I mean, earlier you saw my shop cat jump up on the desk and I give a lot to animal hospitals and animal charities that help keep one cat off the street or do one more thing. And that's what I do. So there's not one thing that I do to give back. It's a yeah, lot of no. things. Love it. Love it, Chris. That's, that's awesome. It's one thing I've been trying to be very much more intentional about. That's been a big goal of mine is to make sure I'm, you know, helping out others. And, and it hasn't been one of those big intentions until just recently. It's like, I got to really focus on this. I was telling my wife the other day that, you know, like I had these goals to get to certain places financially, but I also had these goals to give as well. And I've achieved the first one, but the second one has, has not been there. And, and so just being intentional about it, I think is really the most important thing. And I like that you're just, you, you grab these envelopes that come because we all get them and you're just intentional about it. You, you write that checkout, you put that number down and it doesn't matter if it's $50, doesn't matter if it's $5, doesn't matter if it's $5,000. It doesn't the, matter who it's to either. It's just that you're actually taking the step, being intentional and, and putting it out there and giving back. So love it. All right. So last question before we wrap up, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? First off for pillar number one is stop giving up control of your money. Stop putting your money in places where you are not in control of it. And somebody else is, is in control. Number two is I'll just go right off the laws. Number two is always find a way to make your money work harder than you do. And number three is while your money's working for you, always remember why your money's working for you. Create your perfect avatar or whatever you want to call it. I call it my perfect day. Too many people are working hard, making their money work for them hard, and they don't even know what they're working for, which ends hollow and it ends in a terrible way. So always come up with what it is you're working for. And I don't mean, oh, I want a Ferrari. I want money. I want to be wealthy. No, no, no. Me, it is, I know exactly what my perfect day looks like. I know what it looks like from the second I open my eyes to the second I close my eyes. And there never will come a time from this moment at 44 to the day I lay or take my last breath that I will not change that perfect day. 
Every day, my perfect day evolves. It gets bigger. It gets grander. It gets better because that's how I don't arrive. So pillar number three, don't ever arrive. Always up the ante. Yeah. Yeah. That right there is so important. And it, if you want to continue to to live a full life, I think we always have to not arrive. If if once we've arrived, I just think you start to die. In my you opinion, because there's nowhere to go, you lose creation. You don't have a purpose anymore. Yep, absolutely. And it's a real thing. It's called the arrival syndrome, and I think it is the single one thing that has held back mankind and and progression more than anything else. Is yep. we all get to a certain level. How many people have you talked to? Like I make enough money, I have enough. I don't need any more of this. Man, you're so self-centered. When you say that, man, I don't care how much money you got. I don't care if you are a billionaire. I'm going to look you in the face and I'm going to tell you, you self-serving son of a bitch. Because if that's the way you think, you have no idea how much you can give. Because if you make more, you give more. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, my, my, my dad, and I love him dearly, he asked me, uh, when's enough enough? <laughs> and uh, Never. That's I, I said, well, and I guess enough is enough when all the problems in the world are solved. That's, oh, what dude, that's, that's when I'll stop. And, you know, I, I just like, but uh, so many people think that way. When's enough, enough. You've created wealth. Are You're just being greedy. No, not. I'm trying to create more. I'm trying to not more wealth for myself necessarily. I'm trying to create better things. I'm trying to create a, a better place to, for people to be. And you're doing the same thing. And, and so many of our listeners are, are doing that as well. So that's um, awesome. Well stuff. said, man. Uh, Chris, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Learn more about what you got going on. Let, let our listeners um, know what, you know, the things you got going on and, and how they can reach you. Well, everything I do, I pretty much give away for free. And that's one of my things that I give back. I give it all away for free. So the first thing I would tell people to do, if you want to know anything more about me, there's a toll. And that toll is your time. You have to go to chrisnoggle.com, my website, and there's a 90-minute video that will pop up. If you want to know any of those things that I just talked about, watch that 90-minute video. It's how I learned. It's how you should learn. And then, obviously, social media. I'm on every single one of them. You can get entertained, and it's just at the Chris Noggle on any social platform. DM me. I always respond back, and we'll have some fun. Awesome. Chris, thanks for all that you do. Tons of great information here. It was a lot of fun talking to you. You can tell you're very passionate about what you do. Excellent journey and uh, tons of just um, amazing advice for our listeners. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, Todd, it was an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. 
and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.